Huh. What, Becky? Can I get my cheese? I'm going to get you supper in just a minute, okay? Give me 10 minutes. I hate you. 10 minutes. Sorry. My name is Pamela Pierce. I live in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, and I am a Head Start teacher. Pamela's daughter Becky has autism. It's part of a rare genetic disorder called Kleefstra syndrome. Becky is going to be 32 years old in October. Um, She has been disabled her whole life. Growing up, Becky did lots of activities. In the Special Olympics, she did track, swimming, cheerleading. But now, her favorite sport is bowling. She stands and she does what, what they call a pendulum drop. She holds the ball between her legs and gives it three swings and then rolls it down. When she first started bowling when she was eight, nine, ten years old, her average was probably around 130. Who's better at bowling, you or your daughter? She's probably better, yeah. (laughs) She's probably better, yeah. But in her late teens, Becky started to regress. She has features of obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, which began to worsen. Her OCD was fixated on water, so she would just be in the house running the water at the sink all the time or flushing the toilet all the time. It got so bad, her mother and medical team decided to pursue what was then a newly approved treatment for OCD, deep brain stimulation, or DBS. This episode, DBS for Autism. Can deep brain stimulation help autistic people with severe features associated with the condition, like Becky's extreme obsessive compulsive behaviors? You're listening to Spectrum Stories, the podcast from Spectrum, the leading source for news and opinion on autism research. I'm Ben Kiebrick. Today, we'll hear more about Becky's case and the potential for deep brain stimulation as a treatment for people with autism. We'll also hear more about the challenges of using this approach. Here's Becky's mom again, talking about Becky's regression. If we'd go into the store, she used to help me with shopping and picking this out and picking that out. Now she would stand and watch the electronic doors open and close and flip and flap her hands a little bit. Becky withdrew, stopped communicating, and lost interest in activities like bowling. She was in la-la world, and she wasn't focusing on what she was doing, but the psychologist encouraged me to continue to bring her to bowling. So I did. She was only scoring probably 15s to 30s. Then one day, during this period of regression, Becky had a seizure. And that's um, when Dr. Gaitanis, the neurologist, was brought on board. I'm John Gaitanis. I'm the chief of pediatric neurology for Tufts Medical Center. I first met Becky when she was admitted to the hospital. At that time, she had just had a seizure. She was experiencing some developmental declines. As Gaitanis learned more about Becky's case, he suspected Becky wasn't losing the ability to communicate, but rather that the worsening of her compulsive behaviors was at the root of Becky's regression. OCD is one of the more common things that we see uh, that's comorbid in autism. These are not really separate issues at all. These are these are her primary core symptoms. And um, she would rub her hands, uh, like kind of hold her hands close to her chest and rub her hands repetitively to, to such a degree that she had uh, callus formation on all of her fingers. I mean, she would really do those activities to such a degree that she was not pursuing other kind of social engagements. After Becky tried a number of OCD medications without improvement, Gaitanis wondered if DBS could help, implanting electrodes into Becky's brain and electrically stimulating it to try to free her from the obsessive-compulsive behaviors. 
After having gone through several medication trials, I, I suggested DBS as one alternative, which at that time, I think it had just gotten FDA approval for, for OCD. In 2009, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration granted a humanitarian device exemption for a DBS stimulator based on a trial showing that the procedure was relatively safe and improved the condition in around two-thirds of the 26 people involved. However, nobody in that DBS clinical trial had autism, so performing the surgery on Becky would mean entering uncharted territory. There was a very real possibility that this might provide no benefit because we simply had no other patients that preceded her who had autism uh, who had ever gone such a procedure. And so we did counsel on that, the fact that we really have no data to indicate whether this would be beneficial at all for her. And surgery has risks such as infection or bleeding. Those risks are lower with deep brain stimulator placement than with many other neurosurgical procedures, but they're not insubstantial. But I think in light of the severity of her symptoms and how profound the effect was on her life, I felt the potential benefits outweighed the risk of the procedure. Ultimately, though, it was Becky's family who had to make the decision. I can understand the fear when somebody says, gee, you know, we want to do brain surgery on you. It's just a fearful term. But when you did the research and you found out what it entailed, it it just wasn't that bad to me. Becky had already undergone a complicated spinal surgery where she had to recover for a whole week in the hospital. In comparison, the DBS surgery seemed mild. When I found out about the DBS surgery, it was only going to be overnight. So I'm like, overnight, that's it? So basically I said, that's a no-brainer, excuse my pun. Um, to move forward with the surgery. The procedure involves inserting electrodes, which are also known as leads, into a white matter tract in the brain called the anterior limb of the internal capsule, which connects the striatum, a brain region that governs both movement and motivation. Becky got an MRI so that the neurosurgeon would know precisely where in Becky's brain her anterior internal capsule was located. A stereotactic frame was installed onto her skull, so the surgeon could insert the leads at the exact angle and depth to hit that target brain area. As they're putting the lead into the target, the neurosurgeon has to listen to the brain. So they're actually putting headphones on, and they're listening to the sounds that the electrical signaling is is producing. And each nucleus has a certain signature of, of sound that it creates. And so once they're satisfied with the location, that's when they connect it to the battery pack. Battery packs were installed under Becky's clavicle in her upper chest, with the wire running under her skin, up her neck, to the electrodes. Everything technically went very well. We didn't turn on the deep brain stimulator immediately after the surgery. Just the procedure itself seemed to render an improvement in her symptoms. So as she, as she woke up from anesthesia, she was much more communicative. Gaitanis attributes those insertion effects to local swelling, which he says may have changed the brain activity around the internal capsule. Once they turned the electrodes on, the effects were obvious. Gaitanis hadn't met Becky until her regression, so they'd never really talked. It was amazing. I mean, it was like she woke up. She was actually having conversation with me. And that was the first time I've ever heard her engage in conversation. We would have a back and forth. We would talk about the weather or... Uh, just other events in her life. I remember her having a back and forth of conversation where we would have four or five volleys of conversations on a certain topic. Prior to that, I never heard her really use meaningful language in that way. 
So there was a really immediate improvement in her language function. So that clearly showed that all those skills had not been lost. It wasn't a true regression. It was more that they were being masked by this constant need to do these purposeless activities. Becky's mom, Pamela, remembers Becky bowling for the first time after the surgery. You know, she had a bald head, so we had a hat on. And she bowled like she did, and she was engaging with people and hugging and giving them eye contact. It was just like, wow. So the people who knew her before and saw that were just totally amazed. The procedure didn't completely eliminate Becky's disability, but it brought back the Becky from before the regression. Is she 100% cured? No, she's not. To this day, when she gets off of her van at the end of her day at her day program, the first thing she does is go to my kitchen sink and turn it on. But it's very brief. And, and I'll ask her even, what are you doing that for? She'll tell you, it relaxes me. I knew from the beginning that it's not a cure-all, but it has led her to have a more functioning life. Later, Becky's OCD flared up again, and she went back in for an appointment. There, the doctors discovered that one of the leads had broken and needed to be replaced. A second surgery was done to replace the lead, and again, Becky improved dramatically. A different neurosurgeon performed that second surgery. He was initially skeptical and at first didn't even want to do the procedure. But Gaitanis and Becky's other doctors persuaded him. And after he saw Becky's improvement, he too became convinced that it was effective. But what should we make of Becky's case study? She's just one individual after all. Is DBS appropriate for other autistic people with severe obsessional behaviors or other debilitating features? Here's Dr. Gaitanis. I think each child with autism really does present with different core symptoms. And deep brain stimulation is a treatment that likely will help either severe OCD or severe aggression in patients with autism. But it's going to require quite a bit more study to really fully understand both the benefit as well as the potential side effect. So I I think it's still not at a stage where we can widely advocate using it. But in a pretty extreme circumstance where a patient is going through a great deal of suffering and none of the conventional treatments have worked, I wouldn't entirely discount it either. I would I would repeat the same decision with Becky with other patients in the future if, if they're faced with similar circumstances. Gaitanis says the best step forward would be to enroll candidate patients in a clinical trial. I think at this point, I would prefer to set things up as a prospective trial and really study things more systematically. So although I do think this will be a therapy that will ultimately prove some value here, you know, I can't advocate it on a wide scale at this stage. Dr. Helen Mayberg is a neurologist and director of the Center for Advanced Circuit Therapeutics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Mayberg says that Becky's case is very valuable. I think it's another piece of a very complicated puzzle. It didn't make her seizures worse and didn't make her autism worse. This is very valuable. On the other hand, it doesn't mean it generalizes to all the behaviors that are seen in autism. Mayberg says that likely for a complicated case like Becky's, where there's a mix of autism, OCD, and epilepsy, there will likely never be a perfect clinical trial. Doctors and families will have to weigh risks and benefits and make judgment calls based on the available evidence. You want videos and teams of people to look at it. How does an autism expert see it versus how does an OCD expert see the same behavior? And to put the heads together to say what's reasonable 
Mayberg says even when doctors agree deep brain stimulation is reasonable, getting insurance to pay for these procedures can be an issue. She attributes it to the stigma of using surgery to try to treat conditions that affect behavior. If you were treating the seizures with brain surgery, no one would have blinked. Okay, this is about that you're treating behavior, and there is a double standard for that. Compared to neurosurgeries for Parkinson's or other movement disorders, which insurance pays for without question, doctors have struggled getting insurance to cover deep brain stimulation for OCD. Mayberg says that a similar bias affects how we think about the safety of the procedure as well. Neuromodulatory treatments relative to other kinds of brain surgery are quite safe. That doesn't mean that they're without risk. But in the scheme of every treatment decision, you know, what do you do when you take cancer chemotherapy? You're allowing someone to poison your entire body. People take that risk because the price of not taking that risk is certain death by the cancer. No one will question that, oh my God, you're going to crack open someone's chest just to kind of open up some blood vessels in their heart? Don't you think that's a little extreme? So these are always relative risk assessments. And this is what we do in medicine. That's why we start easy and we build up. Gaitanis agrees that moving forward, we may have to shift the way we think about treating conditions like autism. Because autism is classified more as a neurological or psychiatric or developmental disorder, we don't think of it in the terms that we do oncology, like breast cancer or brain cancer. He says that when thoughts and behaviors are causing extreme suffering, we need to take them as seriously as life-threatening diseases. This is not an insignificant Uh, problem for those who face it. And Becky exemplifies that as well as anyone. Um, She was going through really, really substantial suffering from this condition. And, you know, it's not fair to her to dismiss that as being less important than cancer. But there are challenges to using neurosurgery for conditions such as autism. For one, psychiatric neurosurgery as a field has a checkered past, with questionable procedures such as lobotomies done to people without their consent. And because many people with autism are nonverbal or have problems communicating, it can be difficult to know what they would want. But Gaitanis had no doubt about Becky after he saw how she had scarred her hands by repeatedly rubbing them together. All I had to do was really look at her hands and the degree of callus and scar formation that she was causing to herself uh, to see her extreme discomfort. And Gaitanis thinks that with autism diagnoses rising and more and more children with autism becoming young adults, we're going to need new options for treatment, options like DBS. Young adults with autism are presenting different issues than they did in early childhood. He says, just look at Becky. I mean, this is a patient who um, had a pretty severe worsening as she entered adulthood. And all the... uh, all the currently available medication options, the standard treatment options, were completely ineffective for her. And she was looking at a lifetime of substantial disability. And it makes me worried just thinking of the thousands of other patients who might be out there who are living uh, the kind of life that she might have been living uh, had she not gone through this procedure. Um, So society as a whole, but and particularly the medical community, has not uh, yet... Uh, I guess, come to adapt to this influx of patients that are going to come into adulthood very soon. 
That's it for this episode of Spectrum Stories. Thanks to Ingrid Wickelgren, this story was based on her reporting. For more, read her feature, Rebooting Becky's Brain at spectrumnews.org. 